Today's show is sponsored by Datadog. Now with cloud security posture management, Datadog allows you to see compliance scores across your infrastructure and track conformance to industry benchmarks such as CIS and other regulatory standards, out-of-the-box cloud and infrastructure configuration rules. Datadog Cloud Security Posture Management, CSPM, performs configuration audits across cloud accounts, hosts, and containers. As a special offer for CloudCast listeners, you can sign up for a free two-week trial to see for yourself how Datadog can elevate your cloud infrastructure security posture by going to datadog.com slash security dash cloudcast. That's datadog.com slash security dash cloudcast. Sign up now and receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're going to jump right into our news. We've got a good bit of news this week. For our first item, Solomon Hikes. Um, if you're not familiar with Solomon, Solomon is the founder of Docker and before that, DotCloud, and, and past guest on the show as well. And he has a new company, Dagger.io. Now, not much to the page just yet. Um, there is, of course, a link in the show notes. But uh, Dagger.io is really going to be a modern CICD framework. And they mention, I do like this, I, I kind of find it a little bit humorous, you know, escape YAML hell, right? Because what is one of the big things with CICD pipelines? It's a bunch of YAML files, and it's a bunch of, you know, scripts kind of cobbled together. And so... What they're offering here is uh, avoiding some of that CI lock-in, whether it's GitHub, GitLab, Jenkins, CircleCI, etc., being able to work with all of them. And they are in early access. So if this is of interest to you, go ahead and go to the website and request early access. And speaking of GitLab, let's move on to our second article as well. GitLab did an IPO this week and very successful. And uh, we've been watching GitLab for, for quite some time, and, and uh, most folks in the industry like to compare uh, GitLab with GitHub, uh, and really interesting to see where the two ended up. Uh, GitHub, of course, uh, was kind of bought, uh, gosh, when was it? Um, 2018, maybe 2019, um, for a little over seven billion. And I, you know, I remember at the time that everyone kind of talking about that, and that was quite an acquisition. Well, here comes GitLab uh, a number of years later, and uh, the stock announced and hit, and uh, initial valuation was at around eleven billion dollars, and closed the day at a little over a hundred and. Three and pushing the the market cap to a little under fifteen billion. So huge congrats uh, to GitLab and all the folks out there. Um, a quick side note as well too. In reading the article, they they were known as a remote work company, and um, in filing of the S one and and on the prospectus uh, for their address, they just said address not applicable. I thought that was funny. So they really are continuing to move ahead and certainly wish them the best of luck. For our next article this week, um, 
A lot of us in the industry tend to use uh, Apple and, and the MacBook laptops, and Apple made a pretty significant announcement. Um, and I think this was kind of the real release, if you will, of um, the M1 uh, laptops from last year. They released the the next iteration of them and just fantastic performance, um, fantastic lower power consumption out of them. Really, really good stats coming out of them. And lots of folks decided um, they're going to go ahead and pre-order one. Now, why though? It's not necessarily speeds and feeds on this one. Um, this one is a little bit of return to what made the MacBook and MacBook Pro so great as a laptop from a functionality standpoint from five years ago. No touch bar anymore, uh, going back to regular ports. In addition to that, it was an interesting to see the evolution of chips and these migrations off of chips and how successful Apple has been doing this for a number of years. This isn't the first time they've done a chip transition. And uh, Stephen Sinofsky and uh, did a pretty lengthy Twitter thread on it. And it's really worth a good read. It goes all the way back to the early days of instruction sets and chip sets and uh, CISC versus RISC, if anybody still remembers that, and PowerPCs and PowerPCs and the transition to Intel and then the transition from Intel into their own, you know, back into the ARM chipsets. So a really fascinating to see kind of under the covers how they're able to achieve something like this and how they got better over the years. And one of, one of the few companies I feel that has done this successfully and has done this successfully multiple times. So with that, um, definitely go check out that Twitter uh, list or tw Twitter thread. Um, it is in the show notes. And so with that, we're going to move on to our main topic this week. We're going to be talking with Kevin Hoffman, about WebAssembly and Wasm Cloud right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And Aaron, you know, there, there are two things that uh, we, we love to do probably more than anything on this show. Um, and we don't always get to do a lot of it, but uh, I feel like we haven't done as much this year. But we love to introduce new technologies to folks, and we love to introduce uh, new guests. So uh, why don't you, you know, both introduce our guests, but also let them know what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we've been hearing more and more about WebAssembly and, and Wasm as well. And so we're going to be talking to Kevin Hoffman, CTO at Cosmonic today. And so, Kevin, 
why don't you do, uh, uh, first of all, welcome to the show, and then do a quick introduction here. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background and what led you to create Wasm Cloud. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my background is uh, almost entirely on the back end. Uh, while I've been able to do some front-end user interface stuff once in a while, I, I usually don't admit to it because <laughs> then people ask me to do it again. Uh, but yeah, my my specialty is in distributed systems, and you know I've worked for a number of different companies, including uh, Pivotal and some and uh, Capital One, uh, basically teaching teams and companies to you know, to build distributed applications and to build uh, cl cloud native applications. And uh, you know, mostly the, what happened was I discovered uh, WebAssembly and I was looking at it and realized that uh, because of what it is, and I, I can get into some detail on that in a minute, but because of you know, what it is, if people could build applications where their non-functional requirements were described as contracts, then we could leverage WebAssembly to literally change the way people build distributed applications. And so for the last couple of years, I've been uh, dedicated to building the tooling and uh, hopefully trying to uh, help out creating a community of like-minded people that are all trying to use WebAssembly to build these new, uh, you know, I guess, future applications. Nice. And, and so Kevin, let's, let's start there then. Let's, let's begin by talking about WebAssembly. First of all, what is it? Is this a language? Is this a, a framework? And, and what problems does it solve for developers? Okay. So WebAssembly is not a language, nor is it a framework. It's actually a bytecode format. So, um, in a sense, it is a virtual machine. Um, for for those that care, it's a stack-based virtual machine. So there are a number of things that WebAssembly virtual machines do uh, faster than uh, register-based uh, register virtual machines. So WebAssembly is, as I said, it's a virtual machine format. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that the virtual machine format is portable. So as long as there is a suitable host runtime, a WebAssembly module, a .wasm file, can run anywhere. Uh, and so that includes, you know, the edge, the cloud, obviously the browser, since that's where it, it started, uh, and everywhere in between. And so one of the one of the interesting things about WebAssembly, in addition to you know it being portable, but you know it's also portable and small and fast, and it can't do anything without the host runtime. So it has no you know none of the instructions in WebAssembly allow you to access the operating system, uh, read from files. Although there's an extension called WASI that lets you do that, but even that is within a sandbox uh, and the WebAssembly memory is 
an isolated block of memory that can't, you know, uh, can't cross that boundary between the WebAssembly module and the host runtime. So if you think about some of the portability stuff, imagine that uh, someone were to uh, change the format of, say, video games so that if you built your game in this particular format, it would run on Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and Nintendo Switch, all without anybody having to change any code. And, you know, business and competition aside, that kind of uh, ubiquity is one of the things that a lot of us are really looking forward to with WebAssembly. Yeah. Let me let me ask a dumb a dumb question sort of as a follow-up because I'm in, in my brain, the way I always learn stuff is sort of compare it to, to the older thing. Um, you know, we, we've heard this idea of kind of write once portability back in the Java days. Um, you know, Java again, you know, Java VM based and, and so forth. Like walk us through why this is different or, you know, what the old thing couldn't do that this now does. Is it just, you know, faster technology, smaller footprint, or is there something just really different now about the way the web and the cloud works that uh, maybe those old things weren't weren't the right fit for? Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. And I think one of the things that WebAssembly does better, uh, or maybe not better, but more suited towards the kind of distributed apps that, that I'm talking about, is WebAssembly does less. So, you know, Java is, uh, there is a bytecode format for Java and, you know, it's a, technically it's, it's, it's there's a virtual machine there. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are instructions in the Java virtual machine that talk to the operating system, that talk to uh, the network that talk to uh, hardware resources and all of that other stuff. So they're, while, you know, on paper, a bytecode virtual machine uh, sounds like it could be either WebAssembly or Java. Uh, WebAssembly has a really, really limited set of instructions. And my opinion on that is that that's actually a really good thing. The, the less that it does, contributes to how portable it is. So, you know, uh, regardless of what CPU architecture you're using or what operating system you're running on, as long as the host runtime knows how to interpret that WebAssembly module, it'll work. And, you know, uh, those of us who have Java experience in the past know that that's just not the case. There are, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's all sorts of problems that you have trying to get a, a compiled set of uh, Java to run everywhere. Yeah. And Kevin, I think that's probably been, you know, almost a bit of a running joke with the Java, right? Like everyone knows what the ideal was and everyone knows about the, you know, the, the right ones to run, run anywhere kind of philosophy, but also a lot of people also know that that had various levels of success. <laughs> let's just put it that way. Um, so, so then let's talk about how that kind of transfers into to wasm cloud um you know once once somebody has built something leveraging WebAssembly, how does it interact 
with Wasm Cloud and and give everyone maybe as part of that a you know an introduction to to Wasm Cloud and what is Wasm Cloud as well. Sure. Well, so the the progression that uh, we think a lot of people have is you get to WebAssembly and you start with you know the the simplest WebAssembly example, which is you know write a module that adds two numbers, and everything seems fine, but one of the limitations of WebAssembly is that it only speaks numbers. The input and output from functions can only be numbers. WebAssembly doesn't have uh, string parameters. It doesn't have blobs, doesn't have hash maps. None of the things that you know we take for granted uh, in most of our regular programming environments. So right after people discover, discover low-level WebAssembly, the next thing they want to do is figure out how to send, you know, complex payloads between the host runtime and the WebAssembly module. And so that's where the foundation of Wasma Cloud came in. The first problem we were trying to solve was how do we let people, you know, serialize arbitrary structures and send them into WebAssembly functions as parameters and then get robust answers that are more than just, you know, numbers. And then from there, we went to, you know, how do I make it so that these WebAssembly modules can run, you know, following the, um, and inspired by the actor model? How do we make it so that people can write actors as WebAssembly modules where the developer only has to worry about single-threaded business logic and the runtime takes care of binding that business logic to non-functional requirements like a database or a web server or all the other stuff we use on a daily basis. Uh, and then from there, how do we distribute it so that these actors are um, scalable across uh, you know, any number of hosts and, you know, our, our lattice network makes it so that you can deploy all these actors across multiple disparate infrastructures and stitch them all together into a single flat topology. So one of the things that I, I like to describe as the inspiration for Wasm Cloud is frustration. <laughs> so, you know, I've spent years and years and years building enterprise applications and writing monoliths and services that all have these tight couplings to databases and web servers and, you know, all the other stuff that we need. And, you know, watching our business logic get hidden underneath mountains of spaghetti code. And so I just wanted to combine the small size and power and security and portability of WebAssembly into a distributed actor model. And so that's where Wasm Cloud came from. And, and, the, and the company that you, you're now uh, CTO for and that you guys recently sort of uh, you know, became public now in, in the main domain, Cosmotic, that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of at the foundation of what you guys are doing. I know the company's still in really early days and, uh, you know, sort of product TBD, but, but Wasm is, is somewhat at the, at the center of, of what you guys are, are planning to build, correct? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's the, the classic symbiotic relationship, uh, we hope, you know, between a company and an open source technology where, you know, Cosmonic is sponsoring and furthering the development of Wasm Cloud and, 
you know, we're, you know, we're hosting um, and, and sponsoring the uh, WASM Day conference, which is today at KubeCon, and uh, generally trying to, you know, stimulate and grow the WebAssembly community in general, because, you know, we're both as product developers and technologists, we are convinced that you know, WebAssembly is the future of distributed computing. And so we're uh, we're there trying to make the products and tooling and community to move that forward. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, because again, in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to kind of do some comparisons of things, which may or may not be the, the best idea. Um, a couple, of, I feel like it was a couple of years ago, um, Solomon Hikes, who famously created Docker and some other things, uh, sent out a tweet and he said, hey, if if Wasm and, and Wazi had existed back at the time when I created Docker, I never would have created Docker. This, you know, this would have changed what we did. Can you kind of compare, because a lot of folks that listen to the show kind of understand what containers do and what Docker did and and how it sort of separated, um, you know, this this user space, which had dependencies from you know the underlying runtime and the operating system. Can you can you kind of compare uh, that that way of doing things versus what Wasm does and, and what Wasi Cloud does? Just they may not be a one to one comparison, but kind of why someone like Solomon might make a statement like that, um, just you know, given the advancement of technology. Yeah, that's you know that's one of my. That's probably a question that needs a whiteboard, but you know, yeah. <laughs> as best you can. <laughs> It's one of my favorite quotes, and you know the the evolution of technology and uh, how we build applications that uh, that changes when the deployment format or the unit of deployment changes. So, you know, we can you know we build uh, libraries and frameworks and tools, and those make incremental changes. But when we change the actual thing that we deploy that's when the entire landscape changes. And that changed when we went from building on bare metal to building on uh, virtual machines. And that changed again when we switched from virtual machines to uh, Docker images. So uh, this progression is us continuing to uh, remove, abstract, and virtualize things that we care less and less about. And so that transition from Docker to WebAssembly, you know, we hope is is going to be something similar. Where, you know, we've when you go from virtual machines to Docker, you're now virtualizing the operating system, and then when you go from uh, Docker to WebAssembly modules, assuming you have the right uh, the right host runtime, you're now abstracting all of your non-functional requirements and able to encode nothing but pure business logic yeah so it's it's all about just keep moving up the stack and keep differentiating and leaving by the wayside all of that stuff that's you know cruft if you will or things that that doesn't necessarily move the needle as much with the business right yeah um, if you think about like the historically the reason to change that motivates developers to go and patch production software or you know, redeploy things. What's the percentage of time that the change you're making is to change a feature or the business logic versus 
you know, patching a security vulnerability or upgrading a library dependency that you own because your app consumes it, changing something, another non-functional requirement that's tightly coupled to your app. Um, you know, my experience is 90% of the time that I am in there working on code and deploying new things has nothing whatsoever to do with my business logic. And it's all about the non-functional requirements and the other cruft that comes along with it. And so we're, we're hoping that WebAssembly will, will change that and invert that ratio so that we can go to on forward and spend 90% of our time working on features and only 10% or hopefully even less working on non-functional requirements. Yeah. And, and Kevin, that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I'll, I'll move on real quick to kind of the next thing, which is very timely. Um, so as of when we're recording this, um, yesterday was Wasm Day at, at Cloud Native Con. And so what were some of the highlights and, and focus areas from uh, the event? Actually, I believe Wasm Day is today. It starts at uh, 11 o'clock Eastern, as far as I know. Ah, I thought it was yesterday. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 we're good either way because we'll end up publishing this just. After yeah, that is gone, true. So, that so is everybody true. Will be, uh, everybody <laughs> will be a time traveler at that point. So but, yeah, through the magic of recording, time will mm -hmm. itself out. Yeah, but you know the the schedule is uh, really amazing because you know you have people that are using WebAssembly for. Uh, you know, what you might think WebAssembly would be used for, which is just to write uh, stuff that runs in the browser. But you've also got people that are building uh, functions, uh, very Lambda-like functions that are running out on the edge using things like Cloudflare workers. And, and those are written in WebAssembly. You've got people building stuff in the cloud to, you know, like Wasm Cloud, where you know, they're using distributed actor models to build WebAssembly. There's talks about how to integrate uh, WebAssembly with Kubernetes. And so there's, it's being picked up everywhere. And uh, I'm super excited to see what people are going to do with it next. Yeah. What are, what are some of the, the, the kind of, you know, you, you mentioned there's folks that are doing this, you know, out there in the wild and in anger, if you will, what are some of the the kind of early use cases, some of the, the simple, um, you know, low-hanging fruit that people get started with? So in the cloud space, um, people are, there's a, there's a, a project called Linkerd and um, people are able to write, you know, low-level networking filters using WebAssembly. There are, like I mentioned, there's uh, Cloudflare, and uh, there's actually a couple of other companies in this space where they're letting you write uh, WebAssembly functions and deploy them all the way out to the edge so that the code uh, executes as close to the customer as possible. Uh, and then you know, you've got the where I'm focusing, which is uh, Cloud as well as Edge, so sort of treating uh, my goal is to treat the edge cloud browser and IOT device all as a uniform, uh, you know, think of it like an empty vessel for compute. You can throw those modules anywhere and run them anywhere and, you know, optimize your deployment strategy that way. 
And and Kevin, um, we'll kind of we are kind of at time here. I'll I'll kind of end with this. If folks are interested out there, and and uh, shameless plug for you as well. Um, you have a book coming out um, or already out, uh, programming WebAssembly with Rust. What are some ways folks can get started with both WebAssembly and Wasm Cloud? Sure. So you know, as you mentioned. Um, Shameless self promotion there. I do have a, a book that goes through, you know, how to do some basic WebAssembly stuff with Rust. Uh, there are some languages that are designed specifically to target WebAssembly and nothing else, um, like AssemblyScript and Grain. Um, those are so. If you go to you know AssemblyScript.org, there's a, uh, a set of good tutorials to get you started on writing assembly script, which is very, it's, uh, I think that it's technically a subset uh, of JavaScript, but if you, if you're familiar with JavaScript, then using assembly script may be the lowest friction way to get introduced to uh, web assembly. If you're um, more of a, a systems language type person, then Rust might be a good avenue. Uh, C and C++ obviously have really good tooling as well. Uh, so it really just depends on uh, sort of the, the, the perspective that you want to take when you approach it. You can either write languages that target WebAssembly directly, or uh, you, know, you can use your favorite language, and then uh, if it supports it, have it compile into WebAssembly modules. Um, if you're a fan of Go, I know Tiny Go has a pretty good story for compiling into WebAssembly. I think I haven't played with it recently, but the last time I explored it, the full Go language had some issues being able to produce WebAssembly stuff that didn't require you know kind of custom JavaScript shims. Nice. Well, listen, Kevin. Thank you so much for the time this morning. I know sometimes, uh, <laughs> as somebody who's who's expert in this stuff, it can be a little tedious talking to to newbies like ourselves. But it is always it's useful for us to kind of be able to to pick your brain, even at the the most basic level, and really kind of uh, you know put it into into the hierarchy of things that that we've seen evolve over time. And so, uh, not only uh, you know, first off, congratulations on the book being published. We've we've both been through that ourselves. We know that's a an unbelievable achievement and uh, sometimes feels like a lonely achievement, but congratulations on that. Congratulations on, on cosmotic uh, launching and, and folks go out and, and, and take a look there. Uh, you know, if you're interested in web assembly, if you're interested in Wasm, um, definitely, uh, you know, a company to take a look at, especially if, uh, you know, if, if the founders and the creators of the technology are starting the company, you know, you're going to be in good hands in terms of um, being able to grow with it. So Kevin, uh, you know, sort of last, last, uh, last thing for you. What's the best way if people want to either pick your brain or, you know, you know, kind of learn more about this, learn more about what you guys are doing. What's the best way to, to engage with you or what's, uh, you know, how do you, how do you typically engage with communities? Uh, so Twitter, probably a pretty good way. Uh, I'm usually, uh, pretty responsive on Twitter. The, uh, Wasm cloud also has, uh, a Slack that we use. You can also use the CNCF Slack. There's a because Wasm Cloud is a is now uh, uh, that's a, a recent change, but Wasm Cloud is now a CNCF project. Uh, so you can use the Wasm Cloud channel in the CNCF Slack, and uh, I'm always lurking there as well. 
uh, pretty easy to find. Nice. Nice. Well, Aaron, uh, again, thank you to Kevin for the time this morning. Aaron, you want to wrap it up and take us home? Yes, absolutely. So everyone, thank you so much for uh, listening. And if you enjoy the show, please uh, consider uh, leaving us a review wherever you get your favorite podcast or please tell a friend as well. And if you have any ideas for, for future shows or future guests, um, you know how to reach out to us uh, with all the usual channels. It's all in the show notes as well. And so for Brian and I, thank you very much for listening this week and uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 